Jesus. All right, we're in the, the book of Hebrews. Oh, one other thing I should, should, should keep in, make mention of as well. Uh, April and I and Grace will be leaving Tuesday for Shams. Uh, we can't come back until Thursday. This is one of the times where we've got to be up there a pretty long time. Uh, so uh, I won't be able to be here Wednesday with you because of that as we continue to do the testing with the experimental medication that she's on. And they've got to run EKGs and all the yada, yada, yada with all that kind of stuff. So we're stuck up there for a few days. So that's where we will be on uh, Wednesday. And we, of course, always appreciate your prayers uh, in, in regards to that as we continue this experimental drug trial uh, for her. All right, Hebrews chapter 12. We have seen in Hebrews 12, and really ultimately the whole book, that this is an intention to grow faith. The encouragement to grow your faith, to remain strong in the faith. In particular, right now, we are in the section on endurance. That you need to run the race with endurance. And last week we observed the, the writer teaching us laying aside the weights. So get those burdens off of us. Lay aside the sin. Look to Jesus and keep your eyes focused on Him. And see what He went through for our sake. And that's where we, we ended last time in those first three verses of chapter 12. Uh, the author, of course, is not done. And we're going to see that as I end the lesson, I'm going to stop midway and midstream because of the lack of time. But he's going to continue to talk to us about encouraging our faith and giving us the endurance that we need. And it might be in a way that you would perhaps seem to think is a little unnatural. But I want you to see what he does for us is really a a, a beautiful picture. In verse 3 of Hebrews 12, he tells us to consider Jesus there who endured such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Then listen to verse 4. In your struggle against sin... You have not resisted yet to resist yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so what he begins with by saying is, as you look to Jesus, I want you to see something about his suffering. And he has pointed out that Jesus has been our model and been our example. And he says, up to this point, essentially, you have not suffered for his sake as much as he suffered. In fact, I think it is particularly interesting in verse 4, and he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. I would have not been happy if I was the original audience hearing the yet on that, because you're saying, okay, you haven't gone to the point of death like Jesus has, but you might. You might. That may happen. In your walk with God, in your journey with Him. And as you strive to endure and run the race that is before you, it may come down to the point of shedding blood. And He uses an encouragement to them and says, up to this point, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, Up to this point, for all that you have experienced, where they've suffered the loss of property and they've been put in prison and they've gone through the hardships, He says, at least you haven't gone to the point of death yet. And I want you to observe a phrase that he gives there in, the, in, the, in that declaration when he says, in your struggle against sin. And I think it's important to slow down on that picture. We've talked about a few times as we've gone through the book of Hebrews 
that the writer here is not pulling any punches, but is constantly reminding us that there is nothing easy about this journey of faith. He says that this journey of faith includes a struggle against sin. Notice it's not an easy walk against sin. You know, it's comfortable life against sin. That we are going to struggle against sin. That we are always going to be fighting against temptation. Always fighting Satan. To ever think that we are ever going to get to a point of spiritual maturity where Satan is going to say, you know what, I guess he's untouchable, so I'll just let him be all of his days and I'll work on somebody else. That's not going to happen. And as much as we can grow in faith and overcome various weaknesses and temptations, do you know what Satan is going to do is just find another area. Let's attack something else. That was modeled as in our reading this morning at the Lord's Supper and the temptation of Christ. Does Satan just throw down one temptation? Jesus succeeds and goes, well, I guess that's a, I guess I'm done. Well, let's try another area. Let's try another area. And then don't forget, he will return at a more opportune time. He's not done. He's not over. He's not going to look at the Son of God and go, well, I guess he's impervious. I'm not going to keep trying. He's absolutely going to keep trying. And He's certainly going to keep trying with us. We are going to wrestle and fight against sin. That's what Ephesians 6.12 is reminding us. This whole walk with God. We're not just simply dealing with what's flesh and blood and physical, but we're wrestling the spiritual forces of darkness. We're engaged in a battle. It is a struggle. And the more that we can be aware of that, then we will be less surprised by the suffering trials, temptations, and difficulties of life. Satan's coming at us. And you are going to struggle. It is going to be a wrestling match. It's going to be a fight. And so we must prepare ourselves for that fight. So that is the first picture that he gives of how we are supposed to look at trials. It's just observing it's not supposed to be easy. Nobody said that life is going to be easy. It's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight. And then he goes about proving that even further in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons for what son is there whom his father does not discipline. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Let's stop there in the reading. The second point that he makes is, in your suffering and in your trials, that our perspective of trials needs to be that we are being treated as God's children. That's the analogy he uses. In fact, he quotes from the Proverbs where Solomon is addressing his own son and says, do not regard or take lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't look at it that way, that God is doing something. And that's our perspective then of trials, is that what we are doing is we are experiencing God's discipline. Now, it is really important to define 
what that means. Because I believe when we talk about discipline in a parental arena, there is usually one thing that jumps to our mind. Punishment. I think that's our kind of natural equation. If you see a kid going out of control, what do you think? That kid needs discipline. (laughs) And what we mean by that, punishment is usually what we mean by that. I think it is important to ask and consider, is that what the writer of Hebrews is saying? Is he saying, as you look at your trials and your suffering and your difficulties, what God is doing is punishing you. I don't believe that's the right way to look at that. Although, however, I will recognize that a lot of people have read it that way and have suggested it to be that. This word that is translated discipline has a pretty wide range meaning, but here's its primary definition. The act of providing guidance for responsible living, upbringing, training, instruction. In our literature, speaking of Greek literature, chiefly as it is attained by discipline and correction, which is the lexicon that's given to you there. Bill Mounts also simplifies it as the education, training up, nurture of children, instruction, discipline, correction, chastisement. What is the picture is something that is very broad. When it speaks of the discipline of the Lord, do not read it as simply negative consequence punishment. That's not what that word only means. It means far more than that. And I want you to see that in other places of Scripture. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline, or some translations, training and instruction of the Lord. Same Greek word right there. And we don't read that as saying, now bring them up in the punishment and instruction of the Lord. It is a far wider idea. Could it include punishment? Of course. But it includes guidance, instruction, correction, teaching, all kinds of facets that are involved in that. Same thing in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction, and for, here's the same word, training In righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what I'm hoping that you will do by looking at this reading is consider. It's not that God is coming along and saying, now here's why, dear Christian, you are having such a hard time. God is punishing you. (laughs) In fact, I would hope that we would consider that that would violate the context that we have been studying throughout this book. It is easy to do that when you kind of take a paragraph and you rip it out of its context and go, see, here's what discipline looks like. But in our study, as we've gone through this whole book, we have seen Christians who are suffering for the cause of Christ. They are suffering because of their faith. In fact, in our very passage, he says they're struggling against sin. They're in the battle. They're in the fight. And he's encouraging them for endurance. I don't believe that we should read this and go, so here's what happens. Every time you suffer, you should think that God is beating on you because you've done something wrong. If I had time, I'd just say all of the book of Job completely blows that idea out of the water. It's the whole point. Is Job being punished for all? That's why he suffers so much? No, he's blameless, upright, fears God, turns from evil, and yet he is suffering dramatically. 
It doesn't take much to think. Jesus suffered. Was he being punished by God? No, he is perfect and holy and in every way righteous. So that's not the picture. The picture is simply trying to tell us that God uses suffering and God uses trials to teach us. And notice that idea of instruction, correction, reproving fits very well to the context. If you keep reading verse 9, besides this, that we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, how much shall we not much more than be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Our fathers gave us correction, discipline, teaching, instruction, guidance, the whole wide range, and we respected them for it. In the same way, here is God the Father who is teaching, training, instructing, correcting the spirits of men, the spirits of humans. And that's the analogy that he uses there in verse 9, verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Correction doesn't feel fun. Reproof doesn't feel fun. Rebuke is not fun. Even sometimes instruction. You don't want your parents telling you what to do. None of that, he says, is pleasant. It's painful. But it has a purpose. And that's the idea of what's being pictured by God here is first, God is using our suffering and our trials to teach us. Second, he says, the purpose of our suffering and our trials is ultimately for our good. That we would share in his holiness. It's a beautiful picture that's given there in verse 10. That God is using this correction, instruction, teaching, training, turning us for our good. The end of verse 10, that we may share his holiness. The perspective that God wants us to have in trials and suffering is that God uses that for our good. That he is teaching us. That He is molding us. That He is trying to bring us to holiness. That He's trying to change our character. Change our behavior. Change our way of thinking. And finally He uses there in, at the, in verse 11. He describes it later yielding a peaceful fruit of righteousness. But notice to those who have been trained by it. There is a picture here of God is using these things. And we are called to allow suffering. And allow our hardships. And allow our difficulties. And allow our trials. To train us. To teach us. To help us to be what God has called us to be. It's unfortunate as human beings. We just don't seem to learn much from good times. We don't seem to learn much from prosperity, but hardships, correction, difficulties, trials, suffering. Those are the things that seem to mold us and change us. And it's an important picture that's being given to us here is that God is using things that are not pleasant. That's why I love verse 11. Uh, All discipline seems painful. (laughs) Who, who wants to do that? Who wants to be corrected? Who wants to be turned, turned away? Who wants to receive that kind of teaching and instruction and discipline? It's not pleasant. 
It's hard. There's a reason why God allows suffering. There's a reason why God allows trials. There's a reason why hardships come. There's a reason why we struggle against sin. And ultimately, I think the highlight of this discipline is the idea of its corrective nature. You are experiencing hardships and the hardships are intended to correct our souls, to change us. To move us away from our selfish, earthly, self-centered way of thinking to a spiritual path. To use verse 10, so that we are sharing His holiness. To use verse 11, that we experience the fruit of righteousness. Ultimately, we need the corrective nature of God and God uses the hardships, the trials, the suffering and difficulties as the means by which that he does that. And I think that is entirely different than just saying, well, God's coming in and punishing you. That's not where these Christians are at, but they are going through hard times. They are suffering. They do have difficulties. And notice the lens that's being given to them is Use it for good. That's what God is doing. God is correcting you. God is changing your soul. God is trying to move you in the right direction. God is training you for righteousness. Trying to cause you to share in His holiness. There is teaching that is going on in that. And we don't like that kind of teaching. He admits that. We didn't like it with our earthly parents, nor do we seem to like it with God. But God uses these things for our good. Notice then if that picture in mind that God is using these things to discipline, to correct, to instruct, to guide, that this is what God is doing with these things, then that's supposed to change how we look at life. That changes what we're supposed to do. Since we have this view of why God would allow these things, that we are going to struggle against and that we are going to experience difficulties and that God is using these things for our good, what should we do with that? And you will notice really from verse 12 to the end of the chapter is a picture of all of that. And I don't have time for all of that. So what I will do is just take on the first couple of verses there. In verse 12 and verse 13, there are four things here that we are called to do because of this new view that these Christians are to have in regards to suffering. Notice verse 12. Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Picture one is in verse 12, and essentially what he says is, get up and get strong. You will notice verse 12 has a boxing imagery to it. You have drooping hands and your knees are weak or buckled. It's borrowing from the boxing imagery of of Greek and Roman times. And the picture, I think, is so important because if you think about that imagery, when you are in the middle of trials and you are going through suffering, isn't that exactly how you feel? Is you're just kind of buckled down. The hands are no longer up. The hands are drooping. The knees are kind of buckling down. You've taken a hit. 
It's hard. And his first picture that he simply gives to them is get up and be strong. Don't stay down, but get up and keep fighting. Strengthen, he says there in verse 12, lift up drooping hands, strengthen weak knees, get the hands back up, get the knees strong again. I don't know if it's a personality thing or a human thing, but sometimes there can be the tendency when we face trials and go through suffering, when the hands go down and the knees buckle, we want to just kind of stay down. Uh, just I'm going to get in bed and pull the blanket over and you know just checking out. I'm not going to not participating anymore. I'm done. The author seems to understand that and says that can't be the response. The response to trials is not to quit. The response to trials is not to stay down. Stand up. Get the knees strong. Put the hands up to keep fighting. I know you are struggling against it. I know that you have the trials. But I love that he just puts it forward and says, just lift those hands back up. Strengthen those weak knees. Do not give up. And notice how he pushes that imagery further in verse 13 when he says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I love how he describes this because notice he says, as he speaks of the feet and he says, they're lame. Your feet are lame. He says, you've, you, you, you've endured the trial. You're in the suffering. You are in the pain. And he says there's essentially two options when you read verse 13. He says, so that what is lame will not be put out of joint. We don't want that outcome. Your feet are harmed and we don't want it to get worse where they're just out of joint. But rather, he says at the end of verse 13, that your feet would be healed. So here you are, you're in the trial, you're in the suffering, you've been hit hard, the hands are down, the knees are buckled, the feet are lame. And essentially he's asking, now what's going to happen next? Are your feet now going to be put out of joint? Or are your feet going to be healed? And the imagery that he uses with that I think is interesting. He just says, make straight paths for your feet. You might be used to that idiom by now because you remember John the Baptist was called to make straight paths for the Lord. And the idea of that is removing the obstacles, clearing the path, get the shortest distance, make it the way to go. And so you can imagine if you have broken down feet, the last thing you need to do are to be walking on more obstacles so that your feet become out of joint. He's saying you need to clear the obstacles out of the way, make the path straight so that your feet can be healed. I, I don't know why I thought of this illustration except repeated personal pain, but I thought about this like it's like walking into my kid's room and stepping on Legos. Is there a more painful experience? for your feet than stepping on a Lego. And you can keep walking around the room stepping on more Legos until your feet become completely out of joint. 
Or I'm telling my child, get these up before I kill myself. (laughs) That's what the writer of Hebrews is doing with the imagery. You have all these obstacles in your path. Remember the first couple of verses of chapter 12. You're carrying all these burdens and you have all these sins. Are you going to keep walking like that until your feet break down? Or are you going to remove the obstacles and get these things in your life out of the way so your feet can be healed, that your hands can be lifted up, that your knees can be strong again? It is a fascinating image of athleticism right here and talking about the feet and the knees and the hands is you've taken the shot. Now what happens next? Well, you get up and clear those obstacles out of the way so that you can walk forward for healing. Are you just going to let those obstacles keep harming your feet so that you keep falling down, so that your hands droop again, and so that your knees buckle again? It is so important that we have this picture before us of clearing out the obstacles so that we can receive healing. We need to look around and consider what are the obstacles in our path? What is stopping us? What's harming us? What's hurting us? What's causing us to fall into temptation even more? Perhaps we're our own enemies in this walk with God and we're allowing these things to hit us again and again and again. Are there obstacles that we can remove? And then notice in verse 14, number three, that we would strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Number three, strive for for peace. I find that an interesting position in the text. In talking about endurance and talking about the struggle against sin and talking about the need for growing strong faith, the imagery has made a lot of sense. And then he comes in and the very next breath is, and I want you to strive for peace. And I think the picture here is just a reminder that in the midst of our troubles, We're not supposed to be the person who's causing more problems. We're not supposed to be the troublemaker. We're not supposed to be the one who's the fighter or the quarreler. Sometimes when we're in trials, what we do is we just fight everybody. Everybody's against us. We cause more trouble, we cause more fighting, we cause more strife, we cause more difficulties. When we get into trials, it's so easy to become insular. When you think about self and you only look at self and everybody else, just kind of go to war with them. I think it is interesting that the writer of Hebrews places this sentence right here after lifting up drooping hands, strengthening weak knees, make straight paths, and the very next breath is, you need to strive for peace. Still our obligation to not be a fighter, to not be a troublemaker, that ultimately it doesn't matter what we are going through. We don't have a right to sin. We don't have a right to come after other people. Isn't that one of our favorite excuses after we've blown up at somebody or caused a fight or whatever? You know, and and then we'll calm down and go, well, you don't know what I've been going through. (laughs) Yeah, well, that doesn't make it okay. (laughs) Well, if you knew, 
strive for peace. It's our obligation to continue to be Christ-like in the midst of our suffering. And then very close behind it, notice in verse 14, we're also striving for holiness. And what a statement. Please let that sentence ring so hard in our hearts. Because without holiness, we're not going to see God. Now remember what he said back up there in verse 10. God's correcting. God's reproving. God's chastening, instructing, directing, guiding. He's doing all these things through suffering. Why? For holiness. Because without holiness, we're not going to see God. If we don't allow this training that God is putting us through during the trials, during the temptations, during the suffering and hardships, we're not going to see God. God's using this to move us along. So we must aim for a holy life while suffering. I think this is hard. Trials come. And I feel like I have license to behave and act how I want to behave because you don't know how bad it is. You, just as I said a moment ago, you don't know what I'm experiencing. And it's okay for us then to let go of the holy life. And what I want us to see is that God is trying to bring about the fruit of righteousness and holiness in the trials. And ultimately then there is a choice that we have before us when we are then in the trial. A trial is either going to do one of two things. It's supposed to bring out our holiness is what he says. But sometimes it brings out our worst, doesn't it? Sometimes hardship, suffering, trials, rather than producing the fruit of righteousness and holiness that verse 10 and 11 talked about, ends up bringing the worst out of us. We become the worst of people rather than what God has intended for us to be. Rather than bringing out tranquility from us, it brings out hostility. Rather than bringing out humility, it brings out arrogance. I thought about this picture quite heavily in my own life. I think about the first major trial of my life the divorce of my parents I'm nine years old and all that entailed in that and I think about my high school and college years and I, and I look at this what trials are supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do and I think I look back at that and I think those trials made me an angry person It filled me with hostility. It filled me with self-pity. It filled me with, hey, you guys don't understand. You don't know what my life is about. To such a significant degree. And I look back on that now and I go, that was foolish. But I see it. You know. The arrogance and anger that comes out of that. It's not what God wanted to have happen. So God gives me trial too. 
all that I have with my daughter now. What's it going to do this time? Is it going to bring out more anger, more hostility? God, why has this happened? What are you doing? This isn't fair. It's all about me, you know. Or is it going to change us? I just think about from first trial to second trial, how much God has moved me from an angry jerk to a much calmer person the second time around. God has to correct us. God has to teach us. And I don't learn anything when things are going really well in life. I just keep on cruise control and I just keep doing what I'm doing. I don't pay attention to anything. We need trials. And it's so important for us to be challenged by the question, are you going to be trained by what God is doing? Verse 11. It's painful. But later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, but catch it, not automatically. Verse 11, to those who have been trained by it. If you don't allow it to train you, you know what a trial does? It makes you more self-centered. And it makes you more full of pride. Because look at me and look at all that I'm going through and everybody should pay attention to me and don't you understand and it just get consumed by it. And I want us just to be encouraged by that question. Number one, what are you going to do with your trials? And number two, what have your trials done to you up to this point? What have your life trials done to you up to this point? Have you responded the way God has wanted you to respond with holiness, fruit of righteousness, humility, tranquility? Or have you allowed the trials to turn you the wrong direction? Really consider that. Notice the writer of Hebrews is putting forward a whole new view of how to look at your difficulties how to look at the suffering, how to look at the trials. God is accomplishing something in you. God is correcting. God is changing. He's transforming you. If you'll let him do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Trials hurt so much. Trials are so painful. No one goes through this life unscathed from hardship. Lord, I pray that whatever we're currently facing now, whatever we will face in the future 
that it will accomplish what you desire in each and every one of us. Whatever it is in our hearts and in our lives that is broken and is not right, that is keeping us from holiness, that's keeping us from being with you, that your trials would change that in us. Lord, there is nothing more important than for us to be with you and as painful as it is to go through this discipline, the correction that we need. I pray that you would do it so that we can be what you want us to be. Lord, give us the strength for it. How many days I feel like that we have drooping hands buckled knees and lame feet Lord give us the strength to get up off the ground and to keep fighting keep struggling against sin clear the obstacles in our life and make straight paths to you Lord, help us in that, and Lord, help us to always see that you haven't left us, and that all that is happening is for our good, that you are working in these things, and that we'd receive it that way, that we would not be angry with you or angry with others, that we would not be hostile towards you and all that goes on, but that we would just simply have a greater endurance and a greater faith as we serve you. God, forgive us for how often our trials have made us not what we should be, but has made us worse. Please forgive us. May we see more clearly how we need to change. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to sing the invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus. We need Jesus. That's what gets us through this. That's what we need. Nothing else is going to get you through this life. Nothing's going to get you through the trials. Nothing's going to get you through the suffering. Nothing's going to get you through the pain but Him. So all you can do is have Him. Let God have His way with you. We encourage you to turn away from your sins. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died for your sins. Confess Him to be the Son of God and follow Him faithfully with all of your heart. If you haven't been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, why don't you do that now? Why don't you come while we stand and while we sing?